Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm John Hardman, the President and CEO of the Carter Center, and welcome you to the first in our series of conversations for this academic year. It's a great time for all of you to hear about the work of the Carter Center and our efforts to wage peace, fight disease, and build hope around the world. We particularly want to welcome our Rosalind Carter Journalism Fellows who are with us tonight here in the uh, audience. Uh, <laughs> our ambassador and legacy circle guest, our board of trustees and board of counselors. So we'll give another round of applause for all of our guests here. <laughs> this year we're celebrating our 25th anniversary and President and Mrs. Carter will share their perspective on 25 years of the Carter Center and also their thoughts about the future. And their activities over the recent past year in which they have continued to be so actively involved in all of our programs. Later you will have a chance to ask questions and most of you picked up a card as you entered the uh, auditorium so please think about a question that you would like to ask the Carters, fill that out and then we will collect those when we complete the 25th anniversary video, which you will now see. The initial concept of the Carter Center came shortly after I left the White House. My first thought was that we would have a place here, kind of like a, a miniature Camp David, where we could invite uh, adversarial groups in here, or either I could go to their country, to negotiate back and forth between people who were either at war or likely to go to war to promote peace. A trusted pioneer of election observation, the Carter Center has helped strengthen transitions to democracy worldwide sending teams of observers to assess the legitimacy of more than 67 national elections since 1989. Election day in a country that has never had election before is so exciting. Um, I remember going to Liberia for an election after they had war. I went down the line asking them why they came out so early to vote and the answer was peace. They wanted peace. It's enough to make you cry. Basic human rights are essential for peace. Since his presidency, Jimmy Carter has worked quietly behind the scenes to obtain the release of political prisoners and others unjustly persecuted. Following his lead, the Carter Center has been a beacon of hope for human rights defenders who are speaking out so people can live in free and just societies. Well, I grew up in a segregated South and I saw the ravages of racial discrimination. 
and a violation of human rights. So when I became governor and president, I announced in my inaugural address that the time for racial discrimination was over in Georgia, and as president, that human rights would be a foundation stone of our entire foreign policy. Building on the reputation of President Carter, who brokered the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, the center has become a trusted mediator for peace. Serving as an alternative channel for dialogue, the center has negotiated new avenues for peace on four continents. I negotiated with the North Koreans for about 24 hours, including Kim Il-sung, extensively. He finally accepted all of the propositions that I had brought to North Korea, to my surprise. Led by former First Lady Rosalind Carter, the world's premier advocate for people with mental illness, the center has created a core of international journalists educated in the facts of mental illness. Their reporting is actively dispelling myths that have stigmatized millions. One of the best things that's happened in my mental health work is that we began a program to educate journalists about mental health issues. And what's happening now is that other organizations are beginning to do the same thing. Thanks to the center's work, 15 African nations have hoped for a future without famine. Farmers have taught their neighbors to dramatically increase crop production, bringing the green revolution to Africa. One person goes in and teaches agriculture workers, and each agriculture worker will have, say, 15 farmers. We can double and often triple their food grain production the first year. The center's work has created a village-based healthcare delivery network, preventing not just one disease, but several at the same time. We have pioneered in addressing the so-called neglected diseases. These are diseases that most Americans have never heard mentioned. Thanks to the leadership and persistence of the Carter Center, a horrible disease will soon be eradicated from the face of the earth. In the case of guinea worm, we have now been to more than 23,600 villages where guinea worm existed to begin with, and we've taught all of these people how to address their problem. Sometimes simple solutions yield tremendous results. In Ethiopia, where the center is working to prevent trachoma, the building of more than 300,000 latrines has led to a revolution, not only in disease control, but in women's rights. In that culture, women couldn't go to the bathroom in the daytime. They couldn't be seen going to the bathroom. We thought they might build 10,000 latrines. Well, the woman got so excited, they built 89,000 latrines. For 25 years, the Carter Center's work has been inspired by the belief that all humans have a right to peaceful and healthy lives. There's such a growing chasm between the rich nations on Earth and the poor nations on Earth that that bridge is not easy to cross. And I think if the whole world, in the rich nations at least, knew about how worthy and competent the poverty-stricken people were, there would be an, an outpouring of additional contributions to alleviate that plight. President Carter's lifelong commitment to putting principles into practice, resolving disputes peacefully, and strengthening basic human rights was acknowledged with the highest honor in 2002 the Nobel Peace Prize. The Carter Center has developed into an organization that is trusted. Um, people feel that the Carter Center is honest and that they really care about the people that they're working with. We try to adhere to the basic principles of morality and, and honesty and integrity and peace and justice and uh, respect for human rights.
Well, President and Mrs. Carter founded the not-for-profit Carter Center 25 years ago, and since then, our programs have touched the lives of millions of people in over 70 countries. During that time, they have put together programs, more than 12 uh, programs here at the Center, with a staff of 150 that have looked at ways to improve not only the day-to-day -day existence, but a way to build hope for the people living in the villages and in the most neglected areas of the world. But President and Mrs. Carter are our hardest working volunteers. They travel tirelessly around the world, and in 25 years, they seem to have gained even more energy as the rest of us wonder where we're going to get the next bit of energy to, to move into the program. So it's a wonderful way to get that kind of encouragement and hope for all, not only the people living in the villages, but the 150 Cardison staff members who work closely with them. They have worked closely to not only monitor elections, but to promote human rights, to resolve conflicts, to eradicate disease, and increase agricultural production. Their vision is a vision of the world at peace. And that is a vision for not only us here at the Carter Center and all of you who support our programs, but the vision for millions of people around the world who seek a better way of life. So please join me in welcoming the two individuals that inspire all of us, President and Mrs. Carter. Thank you all very much. How many of you have been to one of these conversations before? Raise your hand. We don't need to make our talk then. <laughs> I think that uh, what we'll do tonight is to be quite brief to leave more time for you to ask questions, but I think for the few that have just come for the first time, I'll be very quick and outline the basic principles on which the Carter Center was founded and which we've always followed for 25 years now. First of all, we don't duplicate what others are doing. Uh, if the World Health Organization or the United Nations or the U.S. government or Harvard University is adequately taking care of a problem, we don't get involved. We just fill vacuums around the world, which takes us into strange and, and remote places that most other people don't want to go, either because they don't know about the problem or because it's so difficult they won't, don't want to take a chance on failure. The second thing is we are very careful to be bipartisan. We bring in prominent Republicans and others around the world to deal with us on controversial issues. In fact, in this hemisphere, we have, I think, 36 other former presidents or prime ministers who work with us and share the responsibility for problems 
uh, in this uh, northern hemisphere in Central America, South America as well. The third thing is that we're not afraid to take a chance. Sometimes we are not at all sure that a major problem that we try to solve or a major question we try to answer will be possible at all. So we take a chance uh, when necessary. The other thing I'd like to mention is that we try to minimize the foreign intrusion into the affairs of suffering and lonely and isolated and neglected people whom we try to help. Because we found that they are just as competent and intelligent and ambitious as we are. And just to give them a chance to do their own thing, to give them advice on what they can do, like strain the water to eradicate guinea worm, is enough. And we teach them a little bit how to farm and let them do their own thing, just giving them the help they need. And quite often they triple their production of corn or wheat or sorghum or rice that they used to feed their families. That's, those are the basic principles that we follow. I won't go into all the details about the different diseases we handle. It's not surprising that the five major diseases in which the Carter Center has been involved for many years are, quote, neglected diseases. This is a, an official category, a description that the World Health Organization applies to those diseases I mentioned briefly in the film that we no longer know in this country or in Europe or in Japan or places that are basically industrialized or rich. Dracunculiasis, onchocerciasis, trachoma, lymphatic filariasis, schistosomiasis. Those are the diseases in which we are most deeply involved. And lately, this year, we have become deeply involved in a major disease with which you are familiar, at least from the past, and that's malaria. Malaria was prominent in this country, and that's really the reason that the, Central, that the Centers for Disease Control was originally founded, was just to deal with malaria in this country. And so we don't have any more problems with that. But we're dealing with malaria, for instance, in Ethiopia, and I thought I'd outline very briefly what we're doing there. We try to form partnerships with the countries in which we're involved, and we have a very close partnership with the nation of Ethiopia, a country that has between 75 million and 80 million people, about 50 million of whom have malaria and live in communities where malaria mosquitoes are prominent. The Prime Minister of Malaria of Ethiopia asked me and Rosen and the Carter Center to become involved in trying to provide protection, not for part of those people, but for every one of those people. We took advantage of a new technological development, which we do always. I think the most significant maybe in the last 15 or 20 years, and that is an impregnated, long-lasting bed net on which if a mosquito lands, it will die. And it lasts for seven years. So we decided, along with the government of Ethiopia, to try to provide two bed nets for every home in all of Ethiopia where mosquitoes exist that carry malaria. And those bed nets are now installed. And we've educated the people on how to use them. 
we will also have a contract with the government of Ethiopia for the next seven years to monitor the results of that effort. How do we get such an enormous amount of uh, helpers? That brings up another subject, and this is the only two, uh, I'm just going to cover two more. And one is, in Ethiopia, a number of years ago, about eight years ago, the prime minister asked us to help them educate health workers. So there's a long story. I'm going to be very brief. We, by, in just a couple, couple more years, we will have educated 30,000 health workers, which will provide one trained health worker for every 2,500 people in Ethiopia. So if a village has 5,000 people, they will have two trained health workers. And in addition to that, we will have trained about 7,000 health workers that have a much higher level of education, equivalent to a registered nurse or a doctor's physician, assistant. And then, in addition, about 700 professors who are able to teach in the university. And those 30,000 workers are the ones that have worked with us to make sure the bed nets get installed. Well, that's the kind of thing we do. Tell them how we educate them. I'll let you do it in a minute. Okay? <laughs> and I, I just want to mention one other thing to abbreviate, and that is we'll be going soon to Nepal. Uh, the film said that we've um, participated in about 67 or 8 troubled elections. And we go in and, and monitor to make sure the elections are honest and fair. We only go in when there's a problem. There's no need for us to waste our time going into a country that can conduct a good election on their own. So by definition, all the elections are problem elections. And the next one that we will be visiting, Rosa and I, uh, will be in Nepal. Nepal is, you know, the home of Mount Everest and, and has been torn apart for a certain number of years by a struggle between the king, the Maoist, and the parliamentarians. And we have been negotiating with them now for three years, and we'll be going, I've been over there just in June, I think it was, we'll be going back late on this fall to help them conduct uh, that election. Uh, so those are the kind of things that the, that the Carter Center uh, does, in addition to what you saw in the film. And we'll, I'll be quit now and let Rosen follow up, uh, and we'll be eager to answer your questions about those issues or others that are of interest to you. Before I turn the program over to Rosen, though, this is a new book. It's not on sale yet. We just got the first copies, and uh, this is called Beyond the White House, and it's a combination of autobiography of what Rosa and I have done since we left Washington, but it's uh, primarily uh, a history of what the Carter Center has done. So I hope that um, when it comes out on the 2nd of October, or maybe a few days ahead of time in your favorite bookstore, that you might uh, look it over. This describes in detail all the exciting and unpredictable and adventurous things that we've done uh, in the last 25 years. And now I'll turn the program over to the real boss of the Carter Center, my wife, Rosa. We just did a um, program in uh, Toronto that uh, I'll tell you about it. But anyway, um, the man asked me, he said, how do you live with a man who's known for never telling a lie, who always tells the truth? And I said, he, we had shown them this Jay Leno film when he said that I was the boss and that he was subservient. And I said, he doesn't always tell the truth. <laughs> you heard him. You heard him this time, too. Um, 
<laughs> well, this was the first time uh, we had seen the film, and I thought it was good, John. Um, but I wanted to correct one thing in it. It was true at the time, I think, but um, we have now the women um, who got excited about the latrines um, because they could go to the bathroom. We took a camera with us when we went. I wanted to go meet that woman, so we went. And um, I was looking at the latrine and lifted up the top to look in, and she was behind me saying to the camera, now I can relieve myself anytime I want to. <laughs> but anyway, we built 89,000 that year. Now, we, now they, they, one thing about our programs is we send one person into a country. Jimmy signs a contract with the head of state, and our expert teaches their health workers or their agriculture workers um, and they do the work themselves. As Jimmy said, um, they are the ones that do the work, and they are so proud. Sometimes it's the only thing they've ever been successful, every time they've, only time they've ever seen success. But it was really wonderful, and now, now they have built 350,000. I think 385,000. What is it, John? Your mom? Three, hmm? 385,000 latrines in that whole area, and you saw how they, how they um, washed their faces with the... Good. And now in that whole area of Ethiopia, because the women got excited and the women in the next villages got excited, and now in that whole area, the school teachers check the children in the morning when they come in to be sure they've washed their faces. And I've become and known as the father of the trains. He <laughs> <laughs> said he went from being president of the United States to the largest latrine builder in the world. <laughs> um, well, um, the Mental Health Fellowship, um, the mental health fellows are here, um, as John said. And this is my, I think, my um, best time, best week um, at the Carter Center because it's so exciting what they were doing. And for you who are not familiar, so many of you know about them because I talk about them every time we have a program, I think. Um, we've been working on stigma. I've been working on mental health issues um, since Jimmy was governor in 1971. And at the Carter Center, we have a really good program. And one of the things we've always worked on is stigma because it is so important to overcome stigma. So one um, day we were sitting around the task force, and by the way, the task force, mental health task force um, members are here too tonight. Um, just brainstorming, what else can we do to try to overcome stigma? And somebody said, well, since the media has such an influence on how people feel about mental illnesses and the people who have mental illnesses. Maybe we can bring them to the Carter Center and let them know what we know, that mental illnesses today can be. And this is because of all the research. We know so much about the brain and mental illnesses now can be diagnosed, they can be treated effectively, and the overwhelming majority of people can lead normal lives, um, living at home, working, going to school. And so that was 11 years ago. We now have had 88 um, fellas. Um, we, have, um, we have started off with five in the United States, and now we have six. But we also have gone uh, overseas, too. And so tonight we have with us six from the United States, two from South Africa, and for the first time, two from Romania. And it's really exciting to have them here and to learn from them what is going on in that countries in the mental health area, uh, sometimes not, very, not a lot. Um, and, um, and when we travel in the uh, developing world too, uh, in Ethiopia for instance, we have a, a, the 
I've worked with a, a wife of the head of state, and they now have a um, fairly good um, mental health programs. Not at least it's beginning, and uh, so I'm I'm really pleased of what we're doing here and what we're doing uh, internationally. Um, and also, I want to recognize um, some funders that are here tonight who make the Mental Health Fellowship Program possible. I thank you very much. Uh, they're wonderful people. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you was that um, I went to uh, Washington and testified before a House committee on parity, trying to get parity in insurance. And I need the help of all of you here tonight. Write your congresspeople and tell them to vote for House Resolution H.R. 1424. It's the parity bill. And um, um, there was another, there's another committee now. I think it had, had, after it went through that committee, it had to go th through three more committees um, in the House before it could come to the floor. And so tomorrow, um, one of the other committees is going to, um, to meet um, and, and look at that bill. Um, it's the Paul Wellstone Mental Health and Addiction Equity Act. And uh, Jim, uh, Patrick Kennedy and Jim Ramstead, who's the Republican, sponsored that bill. And that's really important. That's the, that's the most important thing we can do to help people with, uh, with mental illnesses be able to access services. And, um, and I think it will do more for stigma than anything because um, if, if mental illnesses are covered, and I've said this a lot of time, and I really believe that if they're covered, it'll be all right to have them. Um, it worked that way with cancer. Um, cancer, and when I was growing up, nobody talked about cancer. It was hush-hush. Um, but when they learned enough about it to know, um, to, to treat it, to recognize it and treat it, um, and of course it's covered by insurance, um, the stigma went away. And I think the same thing can happen to uh, mental illnesses. And so um, I've worked on that for a long time. We've had the votes in Congress since 2001, both the Senate and the House, and I've never been able to bring it to the floor. Now I think that um, there's, a, there's a possibility that we can get it on the floor and get it passed, and so I'm excited about that. The other thing that I didn't tell Jim I was going to tell you was about the visit to Toronto. Um, there's a movie that has been made of Jimmy. It's a documentary. And it's called Man from Plains. It's going to be in the theaters in October. And um, it has been, it, this, um, the producer is Jonathan Demi, who did Silence of the Lambs, which we in the mental health field in particular appreciate. And, uh, <laughs> he's, he's director. director. He's, the, he's the director of it. And Jeff Skoll was the one that approached um, Jimmy, I think. And he just followed him around. Uh, for, it seemed like months. <laughs> um, and um, it, it, no acting in it, it's just what Jimmy did. And it's kind of based around because it happened at the time of the, of the book tour. And um, so it's got a lot of criticisms and a lot of <laughs> good things. And we, we only saw the first screening. So we're going to Toronto to the film festival. And actually, it was last Monday, and it happened to be the first day that we were supposed to go fishing, fly fishing in Montana. So we told them if they, Jimmy told them if they'd send an airplane to get us and then take us to Montana, we'd come to Toronto. So we got a free ride to the film festival. <laughs> and um, um, 
But we went and we got there, and all we did was media. We did this one-hour program. Like, like the Carter Center. But it, it was about the Carter Center. We talked about the Carter Center on the 25th anniversary because um, that was what the film was supposed to be based on. It does have some in it. I hope it has more than in the first screening because we told him to put more in it. But uh, whether he did or not, I don't know. But then we did the media and had to leave before they showed the film. <laughs> so I'm, I'm anxious to see it again. Well, um, but the first, the first, when we saw the first screening, we thought it was good. It just didn't have everything we, you know, things we wanted in it about the Carter Center. So anyway, you can look forward to seeing that. And by Jimmy's, and it's coming out in October, the same time his book is coming out, the same time the paperback book of of a Palestine is coming out, and something else. Anyway, it's a lot, lot of Jimmy Carter coming up. <laughs> By the way, you can remember the number of Rosens built in the house. It's 500 years before I was born. <laughs> I was born in 1924, and so the number of the bill is what? 1424. <laughs> Very good, thank you. Well, that, that's all our presentation, and we saved deliberately as much time as possible so we could take as many questions uh, as we can. John? Well, thanks very much, President Mrs. Carter. <laughs> and with uh, President Carter's birthday being October 1st and the book coming out October 2nd and uh, the other events Mrs. Carter's talking, talking about it and the book tour, it's going to be a very active October. The first uh, question is from a student. What encouragement do you have for American students who see little reason to get involved in national and international issues, students who are waiting on the world to change? Well, the same question applies to people even as old as I am. You know, if we have um, a few more years to live, we want to see the world change. And I, I wrote a book two years ago called Our Endangered Values. And I pointed out in that book the kinds of things that our nation needs to do to deserve its reputation as a number one superpower on earth. And all of us need to do everything we can by writing letters to the editor, by arranging groups for discussion on college campuses to get other students to join in, to promote some basic concepts. I would like to see the next president of the United States in their inaugural address uh, in January of, of 2009, declare that in the future our country will once again become the champion of human rights. I would like for our... Just a few days ago we had our annual meeting here with human rights defenders. These are human rights heroes from a number of countries around the world who are now under intense persecution because our country has basically abandoned our commitment to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and to following the Geneva Accords, which call for America not to torture prisoners and to make sure a prisoner has uh, legal counsel and to make sure they know what the charges are against them and uh, things of that kind. So that's one of the things. Secondly, I would like for every country on earth that is faced with the possibility of a conflict, to say to themselves, we can go to Washington 
and Washington, the United States of America stands for peace, and they will be the champions of peace, and they'll be here to help us find peace in our own country or with our neighbors. I would like for our country to be the champion of protecting the environment. We and Australia are the only two nations on earth that have disavowed the Tokyo Protocol that spells out a target for all countries to try to control global warming. Just two countries in the whole world. I'd like for us once again to be the champion of protecting the environment. We also need to be the nation once again, as it has been since Dwight Eisenhower, to promote the control of nuclear weapons. Our country has now either abandoned or disavowed every single nuclear arms control agreement that has been negotiated since Eisenhower was president. And still we are trying to maintain that other countries cannot get into this realm, which I, with which I certainly agree, but we don't set a good example for them. I would like very much for our country to be identified as one that stands for justice so that all the laws that are passed to deal with, say, with taxation, that everybody would say, well, that's a fair law. The first people it helps are the ones that need it most, and the second people it helps are the working families, and the last people the tax reductions help are the richest people in the world who don't really need a tax break. Those are the kind of things that our country can do to set an example for the rest of the world and I think make students and old folks proud. Thank you. And I want to add something to that too. I think what college students can do, the first thing to do is get involved in the community. It is so important for young people to know what's going on in the poverty area of the communities. In Atlanta, there's a, a, an organization called Hands Own, and if you get in touch with Hands Own, they, they get volunteers and um, um, let them go and, and dole them out to the organizations that need help. And that would be a good thing to do. Uh, build a habitat house. Go to the Katrina area. Uh, habitat can use 1,200? A thousand, a, a thousand uh, volunteers a day, and they're not get they're getting five or six hundred. They need um, really need volunteers. Get involved, and then you will become interested in these things that Jimmy's talking about, and and then you can see how important it is to begin working to help make our country the kind of country that we want. Thank you. If you want to get in touch with Habitat, dial one eight hundred. H-A-B-I-T-A-T. -T. <laughs> and uh, they are very eager to have you come. Rosa and I have been there already this year. I've been there twice. And we'll be building homes back in the New Orleans area next year with a large crowd of volunteers. That's the kind of thing you can do in addition to, you know, contributing to the Carter Center. <laughs> John? That's, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> what are the two of you, of you most proud of and 25 years of working in the areas of peace and health at the Carter Center, and what is your hope for the future? Well, um, I started to say that's not hard for me, but <laughs> because I have my mental health program, and I think it's really important, and I think the journalism fellowships are one of the most important things we've done. Um, and now, as I said in the, in the video, 
other organizations are copying it, and they don't have the fellowships like we have. But um, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill has a program they bring in. I think they bring them in. For, um, I'm not really sure, but they do have a program and um, other organizations. And so it's spreading, and, and which is so great because we're getting that more and more and more, and more uh, journalists um, informed about the real issues of the mental health field. Um, but when we go to Africa, it's just incredible what those people how much they appreciate any little thing you do for them. And uh, I don't know, every time I go, I get tired of traveling. I get tired of going to Africa. And I think, next time I won't go, and next time I go, because it's always something that just touches your heart. Um, in this, in this um, uh, talking about the latrines, um, uh, we had this little girl standing there, and somebody had told her to, to um, uh, Show Jimmy how she drank water, so she drank the water. And there's a little boy there, a little brother, and they and he wanted to say something to us. And he, um, the interpreter leaned down and asked him. He went running over, and as far as from here to that wall was his own latrine. And Jimmy said, um, "You want to show us how to use it?" He was dancing, <laughs> so he squatted down and looked up with a smile that just does it just does something to your soul. Yeah. Well, I won't talk about uh, mental health fellows, and I won't talk anymore about latrines, but I will say, you know, I think the thing that has been most gratifying to me is, is kind of a generic thing, and that is that well, I had a, an interview today with Time Magazine that's going to be published in a few weeks, and they asked me what was the difference between my life as president and my life for the last 25 years since I was president. And, and the thing is that it's a, it's a being immersed in a personal way alongside of people who, in, who we don't even quite often know exist. Uh, what I've pointed out in my inaugural, in, in my uh, speech at the, at the uh, Nobel Prize was that the greatest challenge for the world in this modern era is a growing chasm or divide between rich people and poor people. And all of us in this room would be classified as rich people. Uh, the average income for a person in Ethiopia, for instance, is less than 35 cents a day, $120 a year. That's a national average. And it's almost impossible for us to imagine how someone could live on 35 cents a day for, for housing and clothing and food. And, and, and you see there's nothing left over for education or for health care or for self-respect or for human dignity or, or for hope that the future is going to get better. And I think to see that the impact of the Carter Center in these uh, communities uh, where the people are given new respect and, and new health and new hope for the future has been generically the most important thing. And I think the specific thing that, that we can point to with great pride is the almost total eradication of guinea worm, where we started out with roughly three and a half million cases. And, and so far this year, we've had about 5,000 cases, and we know where every case is. And when we eradicate that disease, 
it's going to be the second disease in the history of the world that's ever heard. been eradicated. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. That China's economic influence is great. Please expand on how and how much China will influence us in the next 10 years. Well, as you know, as you may know, when I became president, we had been alienated from China for 35 years. There had been no diplomatic relations with China. Uh, Richard Nixon went to China, went to Shanghai, and he and the Chinese leaders declared there was only one China, but they wouldn't say which one. <laughs> and so for years after that, the United States still recognized only Taiwan and had no relationships with the People's Republic of China. So opening up that avenue of friendship and cooperation and exchange of ideas, and maybe to some degree, which the Chinese won't admit, inspiration has been helpful. One of the things in which the Carter Center has been involved now for eight or nine years is helping the Chinese little villages have truly democratic elections. There are about 650,000 little villages. And we have a contract with the government of China to help the little villages have a truly democratic elections. And it's, they're, they're perfect. John's been there more than we have. And everybody in the village is automatically registered to vote when they're 18 years old. They're expected to vote on election day. They have a secret ballot. They can run for election whether they're communist or not and hold office. And they run, serve for three years and so forth. So it's, it's the beginning of democracy in China. And, and obviously China has burgeoned forth when when, when we normalized relations, there, no, there was not permitted for a Bible to be distributed in uh, China. There was no freedom of religion. And those are two requests that I made to Deng Xiaoping, the leader. And within two years, their constitution had been changed to permit Bibles to be distributed and to have freedom of religion. And you, you've seen the enormous uh, expansion, almost explosion, of China in the economic realm. When Moses and I went over there in 1981, there was no freedom of economy. Just a tiny little bit, that is a, 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 a farm family could farm 15% of the land from the co-op that was in the ditches and under the shade trees and, and washed away and so forth, and that was just about it. Now, it's got one of the most free economies in the world. China is rapidly growing. They have some enormous problems still to overcome in human rights, and they also have some enormous problems to, to come, as you know, in environmental quality because as the economy has boomed, they still use very uh, low quality coal to provide their electric power. And so China has one of the worst environments on earth. They're trying to struggle with it, but there's no doubt that uh, China will continue to grow at an average rate of about 10 or 11% annually and economically. And so they'll soon be the booming economy in the world, maybe second only to us, and exceeding all probably of, of Europe even. So my hope is that we can continue to be friendly with China, cooperate with them, help them overcome their problems, and make sure that they continue to look for us, even if they don't admit it, to emulate our freedom and our attention, which I hope will increase in the future, uh, of protecting the environment. My I also hope is that after the next election is over and we have a new president, that we'll reconvene an international conference to bring in China and India, as well as all the more industrialized countries to, I would say, arrest or slow down um, global warming and the ravages of it. 
So I think the future with the United States is going to be one of uh, in increasing competition with China. I hope it will be one of increasing friendship and cooperation uh, with China and maintaining stability and peace and economic progress all over Asia. When you left office in 1981, did you ever imagine that you would be this active and involved in 2007? <laughs> no. Uh, we, I, when I left office in 1981, I had no idea what I was going to do, as is described in the first part of this book. Uh, as all of you know, I've, heard it, I've said it many times before, I was involuntarily retired. I, have no, I had no idea of going back into uh, politics. Uh, I had no way to know what kind of career I would have. I didn't want to stay involved in commercial life. Uh, I didn't have any job as a professor. I didn't have any dream that the Carter Center might someday exist. My wife and I found out for the first time after the election was over, to our amazement, that we were a million dollars in debt, which in those days was a lot of money. And uh, so that was the situation when I left the White House. But uh, over a period of time, uh, we, I got a job teaching at Emory. I'm now in my 26 years as a professor at Emory, and the Carter Center was born kind of uh, in a dream. I woke up in the middle of the night, as some of you have heard, and said, why don't we have a place like a little Camp David alongside the presidential library so we can bring peace to people that were uh, potentially or actually at war. And I had no knowledge, I had never heard of trachoma or guinea worm. I had heard of malaria and so forth, but I had no idea that we would ever try to hold an election for somebody or, or things of that kind. So the answer to the question is no, I had no idea about the future. Uh, and I, have, uh, I had no idea we'd have literally hundreds of thousands of partners with the Carter Center. And that is what has made it possible for us to achieve the things we do and to make even grander plans for the future. What positive effects have you observed from the dialogue generated by your Palestine book? Well, for the first, in the first place, there had never previous to that been a dialogue. And uh, there was no, there was very little uh, understanding in this country of what was going on inside the Palestinian territories. And there was no debate on the subject. And as you know, up till this date, for seven years now, there's not been one single day of peace talks between Israel and its immediate neighbors, the Palestinians or the Syrians or others. And, and I struggle with how to at least precipitate some move in those directions. So I decided to write to write the book. Another thing that opened it up was the fact that the Carter Center, three of those 68 or so elections have been in Palestine. When we helped to monitor the election when Arafat was elected president and they chose their first little Congress, Parliament. The second time was when Arafat was, uh, had died and we, and we helped to elect uh, a replacement for him, Muhammad Abbas. And the third time was when they elected more, a more full Parliament. And so, we were required to go all over the Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza, to almost to every village and every city. And we saw the, the plight of the Palestinians, which literally broke my heart. It was much worse than I had ever imagined. And so I decided to, to write this book 
And uh, I think it has precipitated an intense debate. And uh, President Bush has now announced, at least, that there will be some kind of a, um, of a peace effort initiated in November. And we'll be monitoring very closely to see how much progress that peace effort will make. It'll be the first time in more than seven years. So in my opinion, it's been very good. Uh, there's been some criticism, as you probably have, may have noticed. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, in January, after the book came out and I had been on the book selling tour for two months, I got over 6,000 letters. Uh, a substantial portion of them were from Jewish Americans who identified themselves as rabbis and, and Jewish citizens. Overwhelmingly, they were in favor of the book. They told me it was long overdue that somebody brought this issue to, to the public attention. So in, in balance, I've been very pleased at the, at the reaction to the book, and I think you'll see a lot more about it and some of the intense debates that took place uh, when this film comes out next month. See a lot more about it. A lot, Rosen says a lot more. <laughs> so, and the paperback will be out. That's right. That's Same the, month. Today. Yeah. Today. So it's a cheap version of the Palestine book coming out today. <laughs> Mrs. Carter, thank you for being an advocate and friend of individuals with mental illness. Where do you see community services going in the next decade? And who do you see walking in your footsteps in the future? I really don't see where, where the community services are going at all, I wish I did. Um, but I think that, um, it, you know, it kind of swings like we had mental health programs and there were good programs for um, uh, people who needed government services. And then um, after we left the White House, all the mental health programs were cut and other programs were cut too. I think maybe now um, the president uh, had a um, new, um, President's Commission on Mental Health, the New Freedom Commission, and the, the New Freedom Commission reported that the mental health um, system in the country was a in a shambles. There was no way to fix it. We had to just start over and redo the whole thing. And there are groups now that are working on that, and, um, and I hope that um, in this next election we get enough people who are going to be supportive of mental health programs <laughs> uh, to be able to get some legislation passed to help um, to help people who need help, not only with mental health, but with health services and, and just the things that the poor people need to be able to have a decent life. And, um, and we, we um, have, I don't know who's, I don't know who will take my place, but um, we have a, a good, um, um, what for the Carter Center uh, endowment? We have a good we have a good endowment for the Carter Center, and um, we are working so that the Carter Center can go on years and years to come. We have a, a nice endowment that, um, and I, I I plan for my mental health program to go ahead after I'm gone. You don't have any people within your council or that you don't think that could carry on your work. Sure, I have a good mental health program and I have some good supporters and so forth, but I think there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people working on mental health in the country. I'm not the only one, 
there are a lot of good po uh, people in uh, good positions that can do that. And maybe we'll get one of them um, to lead the Carter Center program. And we have a very outstanding mental health task force. That's right, with, a great task force that I couldn't do without. They direct all the work uh, that the mental health program does, and they're here tonight, and I thank them for all the help. And we also have a good advisory board. And these, the advisory board and the mental health task force are the experts, the best people in the country uh, in mental health field, and I'm just really grateful that, that I have them. Thank you. What issue do you feel has been most overlooked by the current presidential candidates? Mental health. <laughs> <laughs> We've heard nothing from, from them. Oh, mental health. Well, I, I won't argue with Rosen about the most important. I, I think the, the, the Middle East peace process is one that no one has mentioned either because it's a red-hot potato, as you know. Anybody that comes out with any specific ideas, all of which are included in my book, are subject to very intense political criticisms. And so I think that all the candidates with whom I've, some of whom I've, I've discussed uh, privately are avoiding that subject completely. And there are many other things that, that have not come forth a future relationship uh, with China, exactly what they're going to do about the environment, what they're going to do to separate church and state, uh, what kind of tax programs they're going to have. Uh, you don't hear any of uh, the candidates mentioning that yet. Maybe that will come out in the general election. There has been a, a lot of debate back and forth about Iraq and, and about terrorism. Uh, and, and the other thing that has been debated quite thoroughly, at least on the Democratic side, is on a comprehensive health program for the country. But most of the issues that I mentioned earlier, the control of nuclear weapons and so forth, I haven't heard a word about them, and they are very important, not only to us, but to the world. The Maoists recently quit the interim government in Nepal. Is there hope for lasting peace there, and how is the Carter Center involved? Well, the Carter Center is intensely involved in Nepal, and so far as I know, the referendum uh, will still be held, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to choose delegates to a convention that will write a new constitution uh, for Nepal. What the Maoists have demanded primarily is that, the, that Nepal be declared in advance a, a secular government that is no longer a Hindu kingdom. As, as some of you know who have studied Nepal, I've, we've been there more than once, uh, Nepal has been the only Hindu kingdom in the world, and the king has been uh, totally uh, dominant, particularly the, the king that's now been deposed. And, and one of the prerequisites for the referendum that the Maoists have uh, declared important is for the parliament just to declare in advance it's going to be a, a secularist government. I don't think any of the people involved in the elections disagree with that, but there's an argument about when it should be declared. My own personal belief and hope, I might say, as well, is that the uh, different parties will continue to participate along with the Maoists and the seven other parties, and that they will proceed 
in choosing uh, delegates to the, con to the uh, convention that will write a new constitution. It's a very advanced concept that was approved while I was in Nepal on my last visit in June. Uh, they they've have taken a major step forward. Nepal has been a very uh, rigidly divided country uh, by social um, status. And uh, there have been a, a large number of untouchables. 13% of all the population of Nepal are untouchables, the same as the untouchables in, uh, in India, for instance. 30% uh, of them live in the southern part of Nepal, and, and they are closely associated with India, and they've been uh, excluded from any participation uh, in the government or in the armed services, for instance. And there are other, other indigenous groups. Women have been excluded from the government, pretty much. Well, under the rules or laws that have already been passed, uh, those 13% uh, of the delegates will have to, of half the delegates will have to be uh, untouchables, 30% will have to be from the South, and 50% of all the delegates will have to be women. That, that's a major step forward and very controversial, but the Maoists, by the way, are supporting all of those things uh, very strongly. So. The Carter Center will be deeply involved unless the uh, election is called off completely. Rosa and I will be there with a large group from the Carter Center. We now have, the last time I was there, we had 13 uh, long-term observers who were permeating throughout the whole country, assessing the political situation and giving reports to us and to each other. So we're deeply involved in the poll. We hear a lot about the Carter Center's accomplishments in waging peace and fighting disease, but tell us more about how you are building hope. Okay. Want to do it? Okay. Well, I, I, I think you have to realize the abject hopelessness of somebody, for instance, that's living in a village in Ghana. The first place that, that Rose and I ever went to see what guinea worm was, we went to a little village that had 500 people in it, about the size of plains. And two-thirds of the people, about 300, were incapacitated with guinea worm. They were lying under trees and, kneel and sitting down, the ones that could, and a bunch of them were still in their huts. They couldn't even drag themselves out to meet a former president of the United States. And they began to work on guinea worm in accordance with the way Don Hopkins and others told them to do it. And the next year, one year later, they had filtered all their water and so forth. There was zero guinea worm in that village. For the first time in 10,000 years, they knew that they would never see guinea worm again. That brought them hope. And when the people get under a bed net and they realize for the first time in their lives in Ethiopia, that they will never die with malaria, that gives them hope. And when you have 30,000 people in Ethiopia trained now, not just to be dependent on others, but to be helping their neighbors have better health care, that builds hope. And when you go into a country like Indonesia that, that suffered under a dictatorship for almost 50 years under Sukarno and Suharno, and the Carter Center comes in and helps them have an honest democratic election so that now it's a completely democratized country and they can choose their own leaders and not live under oppression, that gives them hope. 
So almost everything that we do in helping people have a better life and demonstrating to them that they themselves can make the changes that bring them a better life, I think that gives them hope. So the provision of basic human rights and a better life and a better prospect for the future and knowing that their children will live instead of die gives them hope. During the 2000 presidential race, Mr. Bush referred to the flaky energy policy of the Carter administration. <laughs> what, if, what if that policy continues to be most relevant today, and what about peanut power? <laughs> uh, peanut hulls can be used, by the way, for very high quality charcoal. And, uh, Peanut oil can be used to make diesel fuel, but it's a little too expensive yet. So we have a diesel, uh, a biodiesel plant being erected in Plains that by the end of this year is going to be providing 15 million gallons per year. By the end of next year, 30 million gallons per year. And it will use oil from sunflowers and from soybeans and others, but peanuts is still a little bit too expensive. When I entered the White House, as many of you who are old enough to remember would know, there were tremendous gas lines everywhere under President Nixon. I was governor then. And um, the OPEC oil uh, Arab oil uh, nations had a boycott against America and any corporation that did business with Israel. And we also had an import of nine million barrels of oil per day from foreign countries. I worked for four years, along with many other people, strong support from Democrats and Republicans, and we put in some far-reaching programs, that most of, most of which have been permanent. We increased the requirements for the insulation of homes, for the efficiency of all kinds of vehicles, for the refrigerators and stoves and electric motors and so forth. We did all those things. We deregulated the price of oil and natural gas to let it become competitive and not be so wasteful. And as a result of that, our dependence on foreign oil went from 9 million barrels a day down to 5 million barrels a day. Now it's back up to 12 million barrels per day. And a lot of the uh, programs that I implemented then to use re renewable sources of energy basically were not only abandoned by President Reagan, but ridiculed by President Reagan. We had photovoltaic cells, for instance, at the White House just to heat the water in the White House. He removed those with a great deal of publicity just a few days after he became president. So we are way behind other countries in shifting over to renewable sources. So all of those things that we attempted to do 25 or 30 years ago are now being seriously considered by Democrats and Republicans because we are overly dependent on foreign oil and intensely wasteful of oil products far beyond what we would have been had we maintained those programs. And he turned the thermostat down to 68 degrees in the White House. <laughs> I've been hearing about that for 30 years.
But the solar panels and the alternative energy that, that he encouraged, um, which we would just be so much better off today if those programs that he started had continued. How do programs that develop leadership in Africa, how are they essential for peace throughout the continent? Okay. Well, one of the things that Rosen mentioned in her opening remarks is that we don't go into a country with a whole bunch of foreigners and change their lives from outside. Uh, whenever possible, we send in one of the top experts on earth to go into a country and help them with the program that the Carter Center sponsors how to double or triple their production of corn, or wheat, or rice, or sorghum, or millet, how to eradicate guinea worm, how to eradicate, uh, cut down trachoma, how to deal with malaria. And, and in the process, or how to hold an honest election, or how to get rid of a war. Those are the kind of things that we do. But, but we have a, a, a uniform commitment to let the people in those countries do their own work. So they've become proud of it. We have had a policy since the beginning, with which Rosen has often disagreed, uh, where we don't put the Carter Center name on things. Uh, it, if, if we go into a country like in the little village in Ghana that I told you about and eradicate Guinea worm, we don't call it Carter Center Program or Jimmy Carter Program. We call it Global 2000 Program, which means that the local village chief can say, my Global 2000 Program eliminated guinea worm. Or when we eliminated a whole nation, the president of that country can say, our Global 2000 program got rid of guinea worm, so re-elect me president. So that has been the, the thrust that we have uh, maintained. And I think in the process, to answer your specific question, it has developed leadership, not only in agriculture, but also in, in health care and in the governance of countries. It's obvious that when we hold an election like in Indonesia, the new presidents and the whole cabinet and the whole parliament of Indonesia now are responsible directly to the people who elected them to office and who can throw them out of office when the next election comes along if they don't please people. So we know the benefits of democracy and freedom in this country, and we've helped to provide it uh, in many ways for people in other countries. I think that's developed leadership inside the countries in which we've been involved. Why should we care about guinea worm or these other neglected diseases? Aren't they basically gone? They don't affect many people. And can't we put our efforts into other places and diseases where there is greater need? What remains to be done and what can I do? Well, I think you're absolutely right about guinea worm because we have now, in the first half of this year, about 5,000 cases in all. And we know every one of those cases. We know what village they're in and, and, and who the people are involved, and we're working on, on them. But just take malaria, for instance. Um, in Ethiopia, which I've already mentioned, um, they have had about 130,000 cases of deaths from AIDS in Ethiopia, 130,000. The same year, 270,000, more than twice as many people have died with malaria. And who are the people who die with malaria? They're the children who are less than five years old, five years old and younger, plus pregnant women. If, if you live in a country like Ethiopia or wherever, and you have malaria, and you survive until you're five years old, then you never will die from malaria. 
You'll have malaria and aches and pains and fevers and so forth, but you won't die. It's the little kids who die. So, so that's the kind of thing that I think transforms the opportunity uh, for people and implants permanently in those countries a change that will survive uh, from, from now forward. Yeah, but there are millions of um, people suffering from these diseases that we work on. Um, not guinea worm anymore, but they have. Um, in the past, since, well, it, the, the uh, fiery serpent in the Bible, um, the man who runs our program was at Centers for Disease Control working on guinea worm for seven years, I think, before he came here. And they had done a lot of research. They think that is the guinea worm. Um, and the symbol on the, on the medical doctor's uh, emblem that we thought was a snake. Caduceus. Hmm? Caduceus. The caduceus is a guinea worm, they think. Um, but they've suffered from these for, for years and years. And, and I think the reason that they um, call neglected diseases is because it's the poorest people in the world that have them, and they're not brought to anybody's attention. Uh, it's not because they are they're not there, and they're not many of them. Um, it, in, anyway, it's, um, it's interesting. And, and to go to a village that had guinea worm and go back and no guinea worm, it's just incredible. And, and, and talking about hope, um, we went, this, this was the, one of the mosquito, somebody had the mosquito net because it, it kills the mosquitoes that um, causes schistosomiasis, right? Lymphatic fluorosis. Lymphatic fluorosis. And so it pre prevents two diseases if, you, if the mosquito doesn't bite you. But we went and this man had had his up one year, one, one day, one night. And he called us and I said, look, look, it's just mosquitoes there on the floor and there are bugs on the floor too. Oh, he said, I won't have, you know, the, the mosquitoes are going to be killed. And I don't know, it just, it, it's, it, you can't believe how affected they are about and, and how much, um, how much better they feel because their children are going to live. And I don't know, it's just, um, it's a wonderful experience anyway. Some of these neglected diseases that we treat uh, afflict uh, as many as uh, hundreds of millions of people. Three million people on the average die with malaria every year, much more than die with, with AIDS. So if we can demonstrate in Ethiopia that the entire country can be protected, then this will have an effect on countries in which the Carter Center may not ever be involved, but others will be involved. So we try to be kind of uh, an experiment station to demonstrate vividly the effectiveness of new technology and the teaching of people how to correct their own problems. So in addition to guinea worm, we'll, move, we'll be moving on in the future to concentrate on these still diseases that afflict many millions of people. And in Ethiopia, the public health uh, program I forgot to mention, um, we had um, volunteers from this country work on, with the Ethiopians on the diseases and develop protocols on the diseases that they wanted us to help with, um, the ones that affected them. And I think we've done 60? 65. 65. Yeah. Uh, one of the first 12 was mental health. <laughs> was depression, actually. Um, but we've done 65 of those, and, um, 
and the, the head of state didn't want the public health school, they had none, in the cent center of the, didn't want it centralized. He wanted them out in, because the communist government had centralized everything, and he wanted them out in the country. And so we, start, they, they, we started um, uh, teaching them with those protocols, and we developed the public health schools in six, were there six universities? Seven. Seven. They're in, in seven universities now in the whole country. And, and now those protocols are ready to, we're trying to replicate that in other countries too. But you heard Jimmy talk about how many people were trained and, and now they have healthcare which they never had and, and uh, just rudimentary. And, and I got, um, I, I had a little problem in one country and had to go to the hospital. <laughs> and I never want to do that again. I got a, I got, took a blood sample and my arm was black and blue and I don't know how long it took me to get over it. But if you could see the situations over there and see how the people respond to what you're talking, to, telling them and, and um, just makes their life so much better than makes you want to keep doing that. One of the key things uh, in compliance with the demands of the Prime Minister of Ethiopia is we've not brought any Ethiopians outside the country to train them. They, we didn't bring any of them out to Johns Hopkins or to Emory University or to Harvard University to train them. All of them were trained in uh, Ethiopia, and then the first ones that got to be experts began to train the others. So that's the kind of philosophy I think that really pays off in the long run. And if they come to our country, if they come to our country to train, they don't go back home. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. And the 30,000 health workers that President Carter mentioned are women and the 30,000 women will remain in their communities and in their villages, reporting to these health officers that are being trained. Uh, Mrs. Carter, what words of advice would you give the young women who want to be leaders and advocates like you to have their roles heard and voices heard in a world dominated by men? When I was growing up, I could have been a nurse, a secretary, a librarian. That was about it. School teacher. School teacher. Yeah, school teacher. That's really important. That's totally changed today. And women can um, um, participate in any of the professions and become leaders. And I, I think that there might be a little harassment sometimes, but um, women are strong. You can overcome that. You don't have to give in to anything like that. And I think the opportunities today to become leaders in almost any field. And I do think that more and more women are taking advantage of that and becoming leaders in the field. And uh, more and more women are running for um, Congress, legislate, legislatures, and it's going to make a real difference in the world because women see the worlds and the problems differently from men. And um, I know um, when we had, uh, Jimmy had, a woman in the education department, established the education department, put a woman um, in charge of it. And um, so education was brought up at, in the cabinet uh, meetings when it had not even been on the agenda before. Um, so, but but there, there are places that, um, and, and opportunities for women in almost every field. In fact, I don't know one that there's not an opportunity for. We just finished uh, another human rights conference a week or so ago that we have every, every year. And one of the basic uh, decisions there, I think it was unanimous, is that one of the most 
terrible and persistent worldwide elements of discrimination is still against women. In some countries, it's horrendous, as you know. Uh, for instance, we're working on a uh, judicial system in the rural areas of Liberia where, in many areas, rape is not even a crime and never is punished because, and a woman can't inherit the property if her husband dies and so forth. Th those kind of things still prevail. And, and one of the worst uh, causes of worldwide discrimination is the religious organizations, including the Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches, and obviously in Islam, where women are not considered to be equal in the eyes of God. And Southern Baptist Convention. And the Southern Baptist Convention is where... <laughs> Well, Rosalind's heard me say this before, and she knew what I was going to say next, but uh, in, in the year 2000, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, in which Rosalind and I had, had had our life uh, invested ever since we got married, she was a Methodist first, but, but that was my life, and, and they passed a resolution that said, in effect, that women are no longer equal to men, and women must be subservient to their husbands, and as time has gone on, they have now declared that a woman cannot be a pastor of a church or even a deacon in a church, cannot be a chaplain in the military, and cannot even teach men. This, this is a, 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 a discrimination ordained, in effect, by a spokesman for God that makes it very difficult for laymen to challenge, or laywomen to challenge those premises. And my hope is that, that women will, will stand up and, and, and fight for their rights, even when it may not be uh, socially or politically attractive. That, that's a terrible discrimination that still exists all over the world. Women are secondary citizens in many ways. Well, I guess I was wrong about one thing, um, that women can't be leaders, <laughs> can't be <laughs> leaders in, but uh, I was talking about our country. There is terrible I'm discrimination. Yeah, in, in that, but I mean, there is terrible discrimination against women, and all of our programs benefit women. I, th I feel like we're working um, for women with every single program we have because they do the work in those countries. They do. The, the men might prepare the, the land. Um, I don't know whether they plant the seeds or not, and, but the women do all of the um, hoeing and harvesting. You saw them in the, in the video, hoeing, and... and um, and they gather up the crops and market them. They do the work besides raising all the children and, and all of that. So they, and, and what we do helps them, helps the women, first of all, more than, more than uh, in, and the women and the children. And the children, everything the children learn about food and health or anything is from their mothers. And so if you can help them and give them a better life, you can help the whole country. Not mm -hmm. all of it. <laughs> Rosalind always says the women do all the work and so forth. The men sometimes. They do. <laughs> what do each of you like to eat for breakfast? I eat breakfast every day. Jimmy doesn't eat breakfast every day. And I have granola that I make, uh, that Mary, who helps us make sometime. <laughs> um, and it's, it it's, doesn't have... Everything that granola you buy in the store has in it, so it's not um, doesn't have as many calories. It's, it's the way I like it. It's made with oatmeal um, and um, skim milk and plain yogurt on top of that. 
No, first blueberries, because we grow blueberries at home, and we pick them, and we have gallons of them in the freezer. And if you, um, you, can, if you don't wash them when you put them up, and we don't because they're clean, um, you can just dump out a few out of the freezer bag uh, in the bottom of your boat. So I eat blueberries and cereal and uh, banana on top of that, and plain yogurt. <laughs> Every day that I'm at home, and I miss it when I'm not. Very healthy. Yeah. And well, I, I, when I eat breakfast, I eat the same thing Rosen does, basically fruit mostly and, and cereal. Fruit but but every uh, Sunday morning, since we've been married just about, we've also had pancakes and honey or syrup and sausage, and, and sausage or ham. And uh, we've done it so regularly that once when I was, when we were governor, uh, Amy was a, going about in the first grade and we had some three, guests. Three years old. <laughs> anyway, we had, we had pancakes Wednesday morning, and, and Amy said, uh, I didn't know we were going to Sunday school this morning. She thought it was Sunday. <laughs> so we have fairly rigid uh, diet. And, and Rosen, by the way, is an expert nutritionist and an expert cook. She's an outstanding cook. And, uh, and we take an awful lot of exercise. We swim every day, and we ride bicycles and play tennis, and, and we go walking. So and we eat a lot of vegetables. So, and we eat a lot of vegetables. So Rosen makes sure that we eat the right not thing. Not much meat. And very <laughs> good things, I might say. He does that to me all the time, and I interrupt anyway. <laughs> <laughs> President Bush has promised to veto the extension and expansion of national health care. He says we can't afford it. At the same time, he proposes a supplemental request for Iraq of 50 to $60 billion for weapons, infrastructure, repair, et cetera. There has been no effective challenge and pointing out of his hypocrisy. Where are the Democrats? Well, I'm not sure that that's an accurate assessment. I have heard uh, some of the Democrats strongly condemn uh, this policy of um, of President Bush, and as you know, his main uh, cause of horrendous deficits, which now, uh, uh, the U.S. deficit now, our debt, is 15 times larger than any other nation on earth. And all of this debt has been accumulated under President Reagan, Bush the first, and, and this President Bush. And uh, the main reason for the enormous increase in the debt this past six years or so has been gross tax reductions for the richest people in America and, and, and gross overspending on mainly pork projects like the Bridge to Nowhere is just one example. And I think a lot of people now are saying at least we can have uh, health programs for little children. And, 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 and this is something that different states are doing. Uh, about a month ago, President Bush issued an executive order that, in effect, will prevent uh, New York State and others from implementing health care for little children. And, and my hope is that uh, everyone in this audience and the others will uh, pay attention to what is going on. And I hope that by the time we have a few years of the next administration, we will have comprehensive health care uh, in this nation with insurance coverage for everyone.
Do you have any plans for the Niger Delta in Nigeria, where oil companies are drilling and local people are suffering and rebelling to the detriment of all? Well, the first time that Nigeria had an election, they, they've had two elections since, uh, Rosa and I went down to the Niger River area just for that purpose. And we met with the young revolutionary black people, the boys, really, they call them. And uh, they were fighting against the oil companies that were extracting oil from the Niger River region in enormous quantities and paying a percentage of it to the central government in, uh, in Nigeria. And none of it, in effect, was getting back to help the people there to have any kind of uh, social services or electricity in their villages or schools or and so forth. So you, I could understand their strong complaint. Uh, a new president that has just been elected, Yardua is, is his name, we hope uh, will continue to try to give some equity to those people in that region. He has made statements to that effect that he's going to try to make sure that the corruption that exists in Nigerian government, which is some of the worst in the world, is at least reduced and that some of those oil revenues from that region will flow back to the people who live there. And so the Carter Center is not directly involved, but I hope that we will get involved in the future to make sure that the next election in Nigeria will be honest and fair. The last three elections in Nigeria have been an absolute disgrace to uh, that great country and to the continent of Africa. So we hope we can make a change in that respect. And now we are down to our final question. Uh, President and Mrs. Carter, what do you hope will be your legacy to the world? I, I had a lot of opportunities, and I hope people will think I took advantage of them. Well, I don't see any way to improve on that. We, um, I, I hope that we'll be remembered for promoting peace and human rights. That, that's been the umbrella on which the Carter Center has done everything. All of our varied programs have been under basic human rights. And, and remember, that those human rights are, are much more than just the freedom of uh, speech and the freedom of assembly and trial by jury and the right to elect our own leaders. Those are the things that we ordinarily limit to a definition of human rights. Uh, but human rights also apply to the right of a human being to have, to have a place to live, and food to eat, and a modicum of uh, health care, and some education, and as I said earlier, self-respect and human dignity, and hope for the future. So I, I hope that uh, what the Carter Center envisions as our dream uh, will be accomplished, and that uh, in the future, after we are no longer active, that the Carter Center will continue to expand its efforts, uh, hopefully with the help of all of you. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.